Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited-time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. Today we have Mayor Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. We also have Chris Hayes, who is the MSNBC host of All In with Chris Hayes. And then the news, as you know, with me, Brittany, uh, Sam, and Clint. And the word I'll offer before we get into this episode is a variation will start where you are. So I've said this before, but I'd encourage all of you to get one or two or three people who are your friends, who think about the world similarly, and start to have like a kitchen cabinet to process what's going on and to think about solutions that the best organizers always start small. That Harry Tubman didn't call me and tell me that I needed to organize. Uh, Harry Tubman didn't read 15,000 books. She started where she was and she got a couple people to believe in a vision and a dream and she made it happen. And when people ask me how can they get started, I'm reminded that I got started with one phone call to one of my best friends and then one more person and one more person. And that's how it started. That's how it always starts. So find your people, build your tribe, and let's do work. Here's my conversation with Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. So we'll jump right in. I know you have limited time. Yeah, Mayor de Blasio, excited to have you here on Pod Save the People. My pleasure. First question is, you've been mayor for a term. Can you talk about how you... uh, what has this term been like for you, and how do you think uh, people have responded to it? Uh, knowing that everything in New York City is a little uh, intense and hyperactive, and you know, we're we're a, a city with really strong feelings and emotions, and all that. I would say the number one thing I feel at the end of the first term is uh, more optimism than when I started. I will not tell you it hasn't been sometimes frustrating or tiring. But it's amazing to me how much could be done so quickly. And I did not know that until I did it. I used the example I always use of pre-K. When we started the idea of pre-K for every child in New York City, we didn't know it would work. We believed it was the right thing to do. We believed we could make it work. We didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And we had to go down the road and try it. And that was, I was very deeply involved. We have these like weekly meetings of all the pertinent people. It was kind of like the war room and trying to make everything happen. And we had a really tight deadline because we had to start it just nine months into our administration. And we had to get, you know, that was to greatly increase it nine months in. And then a year later, we had to get it to the full size it is now, almost 70,000 kids. And there was many a day where it looked like the thing was going to stall or or there was going to be something we just couldn't fix and we'd have to delay. And But we pulled it off. So when you see something like that happen, it reminds you how much change is available if people want it, if they believe in it. And if you're willing to you know, go out there on a limb to make it happen. So I look at that. I look at the reduction of stop and frisk. I look at a lot of things and I say, okay, this is, these are things we believe could happen. But it's a lot different when you look at it after it's happened. It actually is affirming and reminds you can do a lot more. And so that's one thing I always say to progressives. We underestimate our own power. We underestimate the pace of change. Uh, We constantly tell ourselves less can happen when in fact more can happen. And so my simple answer would be, I feel more optimism than when I started. 
Now, with pre-K specifically, what was the pushback to the work that you guys did around pre-K? It seems so obvious to so many people that we should expand pre-K, but what were the challenges that you guys faced in, doing, in trying to do that? There were many. Uh, remember, the original proposal was for a tax on people who made a half million dollars or more, New York City residents. But that had to get uh, approved in our state capital in Albany, which is something I think is ridiculous to begin with. Uh, you know, A city of eight and a half million people needs approval from the state government for something like taxing our own people, but we did. Our governor was very opposed to a tax on the wealthy. Uh, Republican state Senate leadership, which has the majority, was opposed. Um, but we have a lot of momentum, a lot of energy behind it, a lot of demand that have been created. It was my number one platform plank in my uh, campaign. And so it led to a dynamic where Albany wanted to say no, but they couldn't entirely say no and ended up giving us the money outright instead oh, of a cool. tax. Uh, plus, you know, we used our own resources on top of that, and here we are. So that was the number one thing is it required state approval. It looked like it was going to be impossible for a period of time, but actually the will of the people held the day because it was it had become a demand. I mean, this is another thing about elections that people kind of underestimate. You put a demand on the table, you get a mandate for it. Well, then God help the person who tries to turn down the demand once the people have already voted for it. So I think folks in Albany looked at it and said, okay, wait a minute, we got a problem here. We can't just say no, we got to give them something, we got to find a way, and, and that's what happened. And then trust trying to make it happen on a logistical scale. You know, we had, the day I walked in the door, there was only 20,000 kids getting full day pre-K. Mm-hmm. So nine months later, we had to take it up to over 50,000 kids. And then the next year, they said to 70,000. We didn't have as much space as we thought we had. We needed to go find teachers. I mean, it was just like a race. It was a sprint to try and make the pieces fit. But it, they were all out there. The, the pieces were out there. It was about focus and a centrality of effort, everyone understanding, every part of the city government. This had to happen. You know, no excuses, failures, not an option. And we got there. So the political challenge in Albany was the, was the one that seemed the most daunting. The logistical, many a time, felt overwhelming, but... We just, this is, this is one other thing I'd say. Public deadlines are incredibly helpful. <laughs> we had a public deadline. We had told the world incessantly this was going to happen. And that actually made the bureaucracy have to produce too because everyone knew. There was like no getting around it. Everyone knew everyone was on the hook for it. And what, uh, were you able to address racial disparities about access to education in the expansion effort? A hundred percent because I think this is one of the, I think this is the crux of the matter of addressing racial disparity in education. First of all, you will have growing disparity if you don't do early child education because uh, it's a fundamentally uh, imbalanced society uh, in terms of race, in terms of economics, and the way those two interplay, which is a lot. So if you wait too long in the child's life, you wait too late in the equation, you're simply baking in those disparities. Every year earlier you reach a child, you level the playing field. And obviously the beauty of our pre-K initiative was it was full day. It was academically uh, substantial approach. Uh, It was meant to be rigorous. And it was for free. And by the way, average New Yorker saved something like 10,000 or even 15,000 per child by Mm -hmm. having it available for a lot of Working class folks and poorer folks, that was a, a huge difference. There's no way they could have accessed it. So for a lot of people in this town before universal pre-K, if you had resources, which obviously correlates way too much to race as well, um, you were going to go get your child high-quality preschool, and you'll pay for it if you had to pay for it. If you couldn't get it in your local public school, you'd pay for it. But in a lot of communities, it was impossible to pay for. And, the, and or there just wasn't anything available anywhere nearby. Yeah. So... 
the minute you say, okay, everybody starts the same way, same curriculum, the entire city, everyone starts the same way. And we did a huge outreach effort to tell parents, including some parents who worried maybe it was too early for my kid to be in a school sitting, setting that it, you know, they really needed. Nowadays, kids need to learn earlier to be strong in the kind of world we're living in today. We literally had teams of outreach workers going, not only street fairs and knocking on doors, but going to barbershops, going to beauty salons, like having real conversations with parents wherever they were, saying, we want to explain to you how this can work for your child. We will sign you up right here. You can like sit in the barber stool and we'll sign you up right here. <laughs> Pre-K right now. Right now. And yeah. it changed everything. And that's why the numbers move so quickly. So I, I think this is, I mean, there's a host of things we could talk about, about how to go at disparities in education on many other levels. But I think pre-K and now what we want to do next, 3K. We want, you know, my number one goal in terms of education for the next term, if I'm elected, is to do the same thing for all three-year-olds. Absolutely universal, free, uh, academically strong, full day. And that will even more uh, address disparity because, you know, in terms of intellectual development, it's zero to five. We all know it. First five years of a child's life, the more you're, you're reaching kids in that time, the more they have a chance to succeed, build a vocabulary, all that. The fact the biggest city in the country is now aspiring to do that for two more grade levels than we ever did before, yep. uh, that's unquestionably going to improve and address disparity. Now, let's talk about when you ran for mayor, one of the things you ran on was ending broken windows policing. You talked about making it a safer city for people in ways that didn't um, ramp up the disparities. I want, I want to cl- clarify. What I wanted, to, I wanted to get away from the policing that existed previously. I wanted okay. to get away from the broken and unconstitutional policy of stop and frisk. Okay. I wanted to change the relationship between police and community. I believe quality of life policing, which I think is the better phrase than broken windows because broken windows has some very – understandably troubling associations in people's minds. Quality of life policing is necessary, and I've been in favor of that all along. And what's the difference between broken windows and quality of life policing? It uh, it is similar vein, but different associations is bluntly what I'd say. I think broken windows policing got a bad name, in part because it was associated with the Giuliani administration. There's a lot of reasons to be highly critical of the Giuliani administration. But I think the underlying principle was the right principle, which is you address little things before they turn into big things. You respond to quality of life concerns that come from the community. I remind people, you know, uh, 15, 20, 25 years ago in New York City, communities of color would call about all sorts of issues and could not get police services. So they were under-policed on a lot of issues that people wanted help with and then over-policed in some other ways, in ways that people found very alienating. Um, quality of life policing means if you call, if you're if you're someone who lives in an apartment building and you say, hey, uh, there's a bunch of teenagers outside my window making a lot of noise and it's 2 a.m., you should get a response. That response should be a smart one and uh, one that is respectful of everyone involved, but you have a right to your quality of life as a resident of New York City. So that is a version of broken windows policing, but I think the reason I like the phrase quality of uh, life policing better is broken windows came with some philosophical questions attached to it that are different from my worldview obviously the association with some people. And to a lot of my activist friends, I think they think it's stuck in the early 90s, and I keep saying it's changing all the time. So, for example, we ended arrests for low-level marijuana possession. That was a policy change that took place and in, uh, in, came into effect in 2015. That is a way of changing quality of life policing. You can take parts of it away. 
we added new parts like Vision Zero, which is the effort to stop uh, uh, traffic deaths and injuries. Yeah. So a lot more enforcement on speeding. Can and, we talk about marijuana for a second? Yeah, when you yeah, say sure. you, you ended it, uh, it was replaced with the summons. The summonses. Can you talk? Can you explain that to people? What is what is different yeah. about it today? And I want to talk about the Drug Policy Alliance sure. report. And I know you guys just released a statement today. Yep. But what is what what was different about? Uh, what you did with the summons versus the criminalization. So I want to take one step back to answer the question. One of the things that we did uh, in the beginning with policing is we emphasized that arrest is not the goal in general. And this was a a big, big deal philosophically. Uh, With Commissioner Bill Bratton and now Commissioner Jimmy O'Neill, the message was from the beginning, okay, we're going to retrain the whole police force. Uh, We're going to teach de-escalation in terms of any kind of conflict that occurs at the community level. We're going to teach discretion to officers, meaning they get to apply their own judgment in this situation, including being able to say, hey, I'm just going to give someone a warning. By the way, warnings are a perfectly legitimate part of policing. A lot of times you see a kid who's doing something they shouldn't be doing, but you think the kid could get the point. You don't need to do anything more than say, don't do that again. That's really, that is literally a tool that was being underutilized. Summons versus arrest is far superior. You get a summons. Because you did something that was illegal, that was witnessed, you can pay a fine, and that's it. You know, you pay your summons, you're done. You don't have to end up involved more deeply in the criminal justice system. Versus an arrest, of course, instantaneously, you're in the system with an arrest. So I think, you know, while we have the laws we have, um, we're going to enforce them, but that doesn't mean we have to jump to arrest. In fact, arrests are going down sharply, not just the example of low-level marijuana possession where we ended. We have a, literally the policy, the patrol guide says, if you see someone with low-level marijuana and that's all they're doing, don't arrest them. Go right to the summons. But beyond that, we're doing a lot less arrest across the board because the goal is not arrest. Arrest is the last resort, not the first resort. And the and with marijuana, just so I'm so we're all clear, is that if it is being lit, then they're still arrested, and if it is in a certain amount, people are still arrested. I think the Drug Policy Alliance report said that you guys, the, the administration, arrested about twenty thousand people a year in the first three years of the administration. Uh, you you all just put out a, a statement today yep. that said that uh, it's far less people than the past administrations. I think that the activists sort of push on that would say that uh, that the race. Um, the number of people arrested by race or the percentage is actually the same. So the, the percentage of black and brown people arrested in this administration is similar to the past administrations. Uh, what is your, what's your take on, on that? I think it's a, uh, uh, I understand the intention of the report is um, probably a, an honorable intention, but I think there's a real willful uh, <laughs> ignoring of the timelines and the facts. We, at the end of 2014, changed the policy on arrest. We said, if you had a small amount of marijuana on you, you should not be arrested. Uh, No one had ever done that before in New York City. We changed the policy, and then that was implemented in 2015. The right way to look at this, in my view, is focus from the moment, the day of implementation, which is when the world begins on any new policy, and then look from there where we are today, and you see a huge drop in those kind of arrests overall for marijuana. The other thing is that there's this interesting technique of saying, oh, look at the first few, three years of the Giuliani administration versus ours. Well, here's what they are leaving out of the equation. Giuliani administration increased marijuana arrests constantly over eight years, yep. whereas we are decreasing them. And the Giuliani administration was in the middle of you know one of the biggest crime waves in New York City history. So police were focused on a lot of other things than quality of life issues across the board. They were dealing primarily with violent crime. Thank God now more and more police can also deal with quality of life. But even with that, we're doing warnings. 
we're doing summons, we're often choosing not to do arrest. Well, you're going to see, I, I predict this strongly, not only crime keep going down, but you're going to see police encounters keep going down because the style of policing we use now, the neighborhood policing philosophy, really emphasizes community and police cooperation, communication, and trying to get ahead of things before they get to anything that would require a criminal charge. We're also doing a lot of work with the Cure Violence Movement, which is a powerful point here, because unlike the previous administrations that held community-based solutions at arm's length, we are funding the Cure Violence Movement, the gang interrupters, et cetera, different names are used, but the same concept. We're funding grassroots people, some of whom are formerly incarcerated, turn their life around, to work in communities, particularly with young people, to help them move away from gang involvement, move away from criminal activity. That's like root cause uh, approaches. That's trying to make sure that a lot of young people never have a reason to have a negative encounter with a police officer. While we're training the police officers to think differently about the community and to avoid uh, escalation of conflict and to look for opportunities to choose a lesser uh, penalty where appropriate. So those two things over time are going to keep growing. And I think this report really did a, a disservice to sort of the moment in time reality that we now see an NYPD moving a, you know, regularly, consistently into this more community-focused approach. And, and the thing that, you know, is not making the front pages, I know it won't shock you, but crime down consistently, stop and frisk down consistently, that was not supposed to be possible, right? Usually if you, if you reduce stop and frisk, the world was supposed to go to hell in a handbasket. No. Crime has gone down steadily as we've reduced stop and frisk 93%. Uh, arrests consistently down. Crime's going down at the same time. Gun seizures are going up while arrests and stop and frisk are going down. Why? Because police and community are actually communicating. That's the X factor that was being missed around here for decades. And what is there any work to be done on making sure that the racial disparities around the, the people that are still being arrested or summons sure. uh, can decrease? Absolutely. And what's uh, that work? Implicit bias training is a part of that, which is starting uh, this year in the NYPD, biggest police force in the country. Formal implicit bias training uh, for all the new officers in this city because um, we're all humans. We all have biases, and the more you can identify it productively and help people move past them, that affects the situation. Uh, a police force that looks more like New York City for the first time in a long time, over 50% of our officers live in the five boroughs. Uh, much more diverse police force in terms of uh, racial background, language background, immigrants, women. We had 20% women in the last graduating class. I think that's going to go up. I think all of these are factors. So it's training. It's where your police come from, right? It's recruiting from the communities we serve, and there's a huge recruiting effort going on right now. It's implicit bias training. Uh, it's a neighborhood policing philosophy that emphasizes communication. So one of the things, here's the most basic thing in the world. If, if a police officer now is working in a very small area of a community, and the way I describe it is a typical police officer under neighborhood policing walks, walks the beat of the area they have to cover. They can cover the entire sector that they're responsible for by yeah. walking. They don't need to get in a car. And they're... Instructed from the beginning, get to know community residents, get to know clergy, get to know store owners. And then they stay there. They're not rotated out. They're kept there long term. So now everyone knows each other's first name. And it changes everything because if someone gets in trouble, including a young person gets in trouble, they're not a number. You know, they're not a statistic. They're a human being that oftentimes the officer knows by first name. And that allows a lot more option for how to address something or how to get ahead of it before there ever is a charge. 
that's another way to address the disparities that have certainly plagued this city and cities all over the country. Got it. Now, I want to ask you about Rikers. I know sure. the Close Rikers campaign is asking for Rikers, and I know the administration has talked about closing in 10 years. Yep. Uh, why Why not sooner? Is there no work that can be done that close Rikers uh, sooner than 10 years? So uh, for a long time, we tried to figure out a way to close Rikers. So Rikers has been there for 85 years. I want to be real. I'm the first mayor to ever say the policy is now to close it. Uh, there's a reason in recent decades it seemed an impossibility. Um, 20 years ago, there were over 20,000 people uh, in uh, our jail system. Uh, today, we're just over 9,000. So there's been steady efforts over a long time in New York City to reduce mass incarceration through a variety of policies. I'm proud to say since we came in, the population of Rikers is down 23%. So we're, you know, we're steadily reducing the population. But the problem is... We have very few jails anyplace else right now in terms of actual space. And uh, we've continued to move down crime. But to get to the point of closing the number one jail for New York City would have to be a serious, serious additional crime reduction. First year or two, I wasn't sure we could sustain that, honestly. I wasn't sure we could get there. After three years, I came to the strong conclusion with my team we could, that we could actually stay on a track of great reduction crime. We believe in the course of the next 10 years, we can get the number of uh, jail inmates at any given day in this city, eight and a half million people, we can get it down to about 5,000 inmates, which hmm. is fantastically low. That's the point where a Rikers would no longer be needed. We will have to build up new jails in the meantime. So the, why does it take that much time? Because it is a combination of we have to keep driving down crime. We could not achieve it with today's level of crime, which is the lowest we've ever had, but we have to get it lower. Uh, so we have to drive down crime more. We have to build those new facilities, which are likely to be at least three or four, I'd say. Um, and then um, we have to also achieve a number of changes in the court system, which we don't control. Um, the court system, which is state-controlled, has to further the efforts on bail reform, on alternative sentencing for low-level offenders. We are supporting those efforts. We believe in them. We can have an impact on them. But we're going to need a lot of pieces to happen simultaneously. So the 10-year number, actually, we came to it and— uh, judge Lippman, who used to be the top judge in New York State, who did his own independent commission with the city council, came to the same number independently. Emotionally and, and, and um, you know, philosophically, I understand why anyone would want a faster timeline. I want a faster timeline. But I also don't think it's really healthy to tell people, oh, I can do it in five years when I know I can't. So the answer is, based on everything we know today, it's 10 years. If these things, for some reason, like, you know, crime plummeted, which would be great— or the court system showed us more progress more quickly, we would reopen that discussion any day and okay. come up with a better number. But based on everything we know today, this is the real number. Got it. Last question will sure. be about uh, turnstile jumping. So yeah. uh, recently, two state legislators uh, introduced legislation that would make turnstile jumping no longer a crime. It would be a civil offense. I know that the NYPD has started to go to civil summonses yeah. for this, but still last year, The Atlantic is reporting that 25,000 people were arrested for uh, turnstile jumping. There are people that have been asking you to either just have the NYPD stop uh, criminally charging people who uh, turns out jump. We know that 90% of the people who are arrested are people of color, about 70% are 16 and 17 year olds. And it, it costs about a thousand dollars per, per case to actually go through the court system for like a $2, $75, 75 cent, um, turns out jumping is, would you support those efforts to, uh, to make it a no longer criminal, uh, Issue I, and a civil issue instead? I have real concerns here. I want to be straightforward. The problem is, look, we, we find a couple of different things. First of all, 
we are looking for every way to reduce arrests with our current laws and our current approach. And if you look at the numbers, and we will get them up online, the number of arrests has been going down steadily for turnstile jumping. Um, so I would argue within the rubric of what we're doing now, there's a way to greatly reduce the number of arrests. And again, go to the non-arrest option whenever possible. The problem is, and we, we've got to do a better job even getting the information out to people because a lot of times the arrest is not about a single act of turnstile jumping. The arrest is about a persistent pattern of turnstile jumping, or the arrest is about another totally different charge. The typical person who is arrested turnstile jumping has money on them because, uh, of course, they have to, you know, offer their belongings up so the police can see what they have on them. They have money on them, so it's not an economic issue from everything we can see. And then sometimes, not typically, but too many times, there is a weapon involved too. And that's important because we need that weapon off the street for the good of everybody in New York City. Um, so I think the difference here is if you, I think the way a lot of advocates have portrayed it, and I understand it, is, yeah, a 16-year-old kid who for some reason doesn't have money on him and will never do it again and just does it once. Look, I think in that kind of case, there's going to be as much flexibility as possible. And an officer, again, has a right to, to choose the most minimal approach. But unfortunately, that's not what we find. And then if you recognize there's a lot of people who do it a lot, um, who don't necessarily have to do it because of economics, the problem is if you send an incessant message that we're going to loosen it up and loosen it up, then more and more people are going to do it. And, and I just don't think it's the right – I don't think it's a good message to the whole society that some people are going to jump to turnstiles while everyone else is paying their fare, right? I don't think that's good for social fabric, if you will. I think fixing the front end of the issue, which is what the whole administration is about, trying to get at the root causes for those who have an economic challenge, right, trying to change the very nature of our economy – of the way we educate people to try and go the core disparities in society can relieve some of that pressure. But I'm just not convinced that um, the reality of turnstile jumping is, should be seen through the larger prism that a lot of us feel around social justice. I think there's a lot of other things going on. I think most kids, most kids who happen to be of color, most kids who happen not to have uh, wealthy families still don't turnstile jump. It's a small subset of people, and I think we have to recognize that. Cool. I think uh, I think this is a time. Do you have any advice for people in this moment? And I know that Trump just called you a, a pathetic mayor yeah. uh, of the city. But people in I this the moment, the best of enemies. <laughs> people in this moment feel like there's not much hope. Like there's uh, not much they can do to push back against this administration. What is your advice to those people? Or what do you say to people who are struggling with hope in this moment? I am very hopeful, and I want to explain why, and I, this is why I'd say to people, um, since when did a single election determine who we are, right? Um, we, as people, as individuals, we're leading our own life. We have our own values. Donald Trump going to Washington doesn't change who we are, doesn't change what we're doing to uh, improve our neighborhoods or, or create more justice in our cities or our states. That work was... Uh, intensifying in the lead up to the election. The mass incarceration, the anti-mass incarceration movement was growing. Um, the impact of Black Lives Matter was growing. Uh, the focus on income inequality was growing. You know, you go down a list of a whole host of movements that have been intensifying. And then you look at the changes that are happening around the country, particularly at the local level, where there's been minimum wage increases and paid sick leave and changes in the approach between police and community and a whole host of things. 
um, we need to understand the aberrant nature of the November 8th election. Not only that 3 million more people voted the other way, and the Electoral College is totally a screwed up model, it shouldn't be here anymore, but that it miscaptured what was really happening on the ground. I mean, how about the Bernie Sanders movement? You know, did that, did that not matter? Did that not mean something? I think all these pieces suggest a much more progressive country ahead, a much more inclusive country. There was a major bump in the road. But if you see it through that perspective, then it's, it's time to go back on the offensive. We saw that in January 21st, the extraordinary outpouring uh, in favor of women's rights. Biggest demonstrations, arguably, in the history of this country. Uh, we saw it with the town hall meetings, people fighting to save Obamacare. And by the way, that contributed to the fact Obamacare is still there. Um, so I would argue it is a time to go on the offensive. Hmm. And I would argue that not only is all politics local, all life is local. Uh, there was a really helpful phrase in the 60s and 70s that was very current. It was, think globally, act locally. And so I would say in all those movements, let's build the models of a better society locally. Look, I'm proud of this place. If, if every place in America had pre-K for all its kids and hopefully for three-year-olds, you know, four-year-olds and three-year-olds, if there was a steady decline in arrests, um, if there was a steady reduction of, the, of broken policies like stop and frisk and more of a focus on neighborhood policing and communication between police and community, I mean, if you, you think about these kind of things and, and how they change people's lives, you do it enough places, it becomes a de facto reality for the whole country. And so I don't think anyone should feel powerless. I think right now people should feel go out and win the available victory. Whatever it is, no matter how local it is, go out and win the progressive victory that is there to be won and then build toward the next one. And the other thing I'd say is so many people are, are energized now. I, you know, I hate the whole hackneyed crisis equals opportunity thing, but in this case, I, I don't think you could find a better example. <laughs> you know, a whole lot of enraged people, a whole lot of activated people, a whole lot of people who sat out election day and have been kicking themselves ever since and are probably not going to sit out another election day. That's a blessing. A whole lot of people want to run for office. Um, a whole lot of people want to take it to... The other side, even in places where it's not supposed to be possible, those are very promising signs. And let's just grab the moment. Cool. Thanks for making time today. And uh, thanks for being on Pod Save the People. My great pleasure. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on a couch again? <laughs> That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. <laughs> Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Are you an annoying coworker? Sending emails when everyone else is sleeping? Do they ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should go to Mattress Firm. They have knowledgeable sleep experts that can help you find a better bed, like a Tempur-Pedic. It has technology to keep you cool at night, meaning anyone, even people like you, can sleep. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And now the news with me, Clint. The resident academic, Brittany, former member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and Sam, your favorite data scientist. Here we go. Hey, everyone. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Yeah. <laughs> it's at Clint Smith. I, I, I. I, I, I. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to change it up, but you know. Uh, but how are people going to know the it's you? hate comes either way. If you it's not, this is um, not hate. This is well-packaged love. Mm, it was funny enough. because it's just DeRay. I, you can tell DeRay was waiting for that. I really was. I was like, you wait. have like a love-hate relationship with the I, I, I. You I were like, it. wait, where'd it go? <laughs> Please follow Clint Smith. I'm only going to call him DeRay uh, for the rest of the week. Shut up. <laughs> uh, this is DeRay. I'm DeRay on Twitter. D-E-R-A-Y. Not D-Ray. D-Ray. Stop it. I, 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 I'm not the only, you know, somebody came up to me recently in public and said that they thought the I, I, I was funny too and that they loved you. So you should take this as a sign of endearment. <laughs> I, I'll keep that in mind. A term of endearment. I don't know if, uh, Brittany, you just went to Black Girls Rock, right? Yes, it was incredible. Um, the taping was really wonderful. It'll air on August 22nd, I believe, um, on BET. But there were really fantastic honorees and performances. Um, I had a lot of really just great conversations. There was just a lot of magic and love. There are a lot of young women in the room from different programs around the country who were so excited to see their faves. And it was just, it was an awesome night. And Clint, you are writing your dissertation. How's that going? It is It is going. I'm on a month-long Twitter hiatus. Uh, so I was just telling y'all before before you hopped on, it's uh, it's really interesting because you find out about the sort of big stuff going on, obviously, from New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera. But the sort of underbelly of uh, cultural and social and political discourse that happens on Twitter is completely gone. And so I feel in many ways very out of the loop. But uh, but it was a necessary break and, and it's good to to step away for a little bit and try to write what I hope will will be a dissertation. Right now, I'm just kind of digging deep into a lot of these books, and uh, and it's been nice. And Sam, you've been fighting with people on Twitter for the past 48 hours. Are you okay? <laughs> Lord, Lord, I'm still here. I'm still here. <laughs> well, still you... standing. Reclaim your time. Sam. Right, yes. Yeah, reclaiming my time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just left my job, so this is my first week uh, not working 
uh, in the past year for the school system. And it's been uh, bittersweet because I love the, that team and those people. And it's also been great to be able to focus on organizing full time. But without further ado, Brittany, take us away. So I wanted to add a Missourian's perspective to the broader conversation that's been happening about the national NAACP's travel advisory um, advising Black people across the country not to travel to Missouri. When I first saw the news, I thought, well, I've been issuing that travel advisory my entire life. Uh, growing up in St. Louis, um, being told I was too far south when I was pumping gas in St. Louis City, not even um, a, a rural part of the state when I was only 17, um, and experiencing the kinds of things that lots of folks listening to this um, know about or have experienced themselves. Uh, this was not a new proposition that Missouri was unsafe for, for Black people. The state chapter and then the national chapter cited the unreasonable searches, seizures, and arrests of Black people at disproportionate rates. Legislation that is forthcoming, including legislation that will make the burden of proof higher uh, when um, putting forth complaints about employment discrimination um, and the kind of death threats that activists like ourselves and young people at Mizzou have been receiving. They cited those things as the reason why they issued the travel advisory. Um, but I wanted to lift up a part of this conversation that I believe it has really gone unnoticed and that my reaction to this um, after thinking that this really wasn't news um, was that this is at, this is really emblematic of how people of color and black people live in this country every single day. On the one hand, we want to remain safe. On the other hand, it, we often put ourselves in the middle of danger so that we can make things less dangerous for the generations ahead. I think of all of the black activists who are in St. Louis, who are in Kansas City, Columbia, across the state, who cannot leave and who are intending and have intentionally remained in Missouri to make it a safer place for Black people. Um, I think about the Black-owned businesses that rely on conferences like the Urban League conference that was just there, religious conferences that come to town to make the profit that they rely on for the rest of the year. And so there uh, is a decision that I think every Black person has to make, and I don't quite frankly have um, I don't come down on one side or the other because I want people to remain safe. And yet we owe a debt of gratitude to people who stand in and face down danger. Um, but I just wanted to bring up a part of the conversation that I feel like has been glossed over from the perspective of a Missourian and say, you know, this is really the kind of catch 22 that black people live in every single day. And Brittany, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, I was thinking about this when I heard the advisory come down. And I remember in April, the head of the Missouri NAACP tried to express some of his concerns about the uh, legislation you alluded to that uh, I think increases the burden of proof necessary to prove discrimination in the workforce. Uh, and in the session, in the legislative session, he compared it to Jim Crow and the Republican committee chair ordered his microphone turned off as soon as he said that, right? So so that was an astonishing yeah. moment to me. Uh, and and just generally, I think- Wait, Clint, you know, what I, happened? So the head of the Missouri NAACP tried to express his concerns about the piece of legislation saying like, you know, this is, he was making analogs and parallels to, to Jim Crow in order to really substantiate and um, emphasize how destructive and harmful this bill would be. And the Republican committee chair uh, ordered his microphone turned off. That's wild. Um, after he brought that up. It is interesting to think about an advisory for a whole state. It's unprecedented, like you said, Brittany. And I, I remember the protests at the beginning. And, you know, people think about Baltimore because Baltimore is like the first city that they saw 
uh, aerial footage of, and the reason they saw aerial footage of Baltimore not of St. Louis is that there was a no-fly zone declared almost immediately uh, of of the protests in St. Louis. And people forget that it is illegal to stand still in August, September, and October 2014, that if we stood still for more than five seconds, we were immediately arrested. So when I, like you, Brittany, we've been to many cities across the country in protests, and I think about uh, I think about them and how just different it was from uh, from those early days for us is like the tear gas and the smoke bombs and the sound cannons and stuff like that, that the St. Louis PD, either in the city or in the county, were just like prepared for war immediately. And like we were just armed with the truth in our cell phones. So uh, the ban or the, the advisory is is interesting. I think that uh, there's a lot of context there that makes it necessary. And like you said, Brittany, there are incredible activists in uh, St. Louis and in Missouri who continue to fight the good fight to make it a different place for people. Yeah, I'll close by saying, uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, I'm not at all surprised um, that folks would find Missouri one of the most dangerous states in the union for Black people. Um, That has been our legacy for a very, very long time. Uh, But if Missouri is unsafe, then the entire United States is unsafe for lots of us. Um, And I do believe that this hopefully will and has to open up a conversation amongst all of us about how we actually ensure that my mere existence is not a danger to me. So for my piece of news, it's an article from the Washington Post, which looks at uh, police officers who've been fired and then actually rehired, reinstated back in their jobs because of provisions within the police union contract uh, that allow officers to appeal uh, discipline and get reinstated if they find some sort of sort of procedural reason. Uh, why, you know, the investigation either took too long or, you know, some uh, guidelines weren't followed during the investigation uh, that allows officers basically to get their jobs back, uh, not because they didn't do anything wrong, but because uh, the process of investigating them, uh, they argue, was uh, contrary to what types of uh, procedures were articulated in their contract. Uh, So the the article actually found 1,881 police officers that were fired since 2006 in the 55 largest police departments in the country. And of those 1,800 officers, 450 of those officers actually got their jobs back uh, by using this appeals process. So about a quarter of them. And so there are many different cases that are sort of profiled here, but it, it really is the range of different types of misconduct that you can think of all the way from uh, sexual abuse to you know illegal arrests to you know, using deadly force, killing, shooting, and killing unarmed people, uh, and all of these cases because of the language in the police union contract, uh, the officers were able to challenge uh, the decision to fire them and get their jobs back. Sam, I have a question more than a comment. So, was there any correlation between the officers who were uh, fired and then brought back onto the force and the states in which? those things were happening? Because I guess I'm trying to get a sense of uh, whether or not certain states have laws or certain municipalities have laws that make it easier or more difficult for folks to come back onto the force as compared to others. And are there examples of states that um, can maybe serve as templates for for what we want to be moving towards? So the thing that they noted in the article was that all of these police departments in which officers were reinstated had uh, language in their police union contract, so this is local, not state, uh, in the local police union contract that uh, allows officers to appeal uh, a decision to discipline them. 
uh, to an arbitrator. So there's a, they call it the grievance process. Basically, it means that if the police chief fires an officer, that officer can then appeal through the grievance process and they select uh, an impartial, impartial sort of arbiter who's like a lawyer um, that actually the police union and the police department play a role in picking who that person is. And that person ultimately looks through the process uh, of getting to that decision to fire the officer. And if they find that any types of procedures or rules were violated in that process, then they can basically just throw the whole decision out and the officer gets reinstated plus back pay. And so those are the types of provisions that are responsible for uh, these decisions to rehire the officers. And not every city has that, right? So we did a project, the police union contract project in 2015, uh, which looked at for the 100 largest cities, which cities actually had this type of language in their contract. Um, and it wasn't all of the cities, but it was a large proportion of them that actually did have this language. So this is something that is not required. Not all police departments have it. Uh, it's something that's negotiated between the city and the police union every sort of four to six years. So if people are concerned about the provisions in these contracts for local police departments, is it that they should they be... Uh, talking to their local councilmen? Should they be talking to their uh, state legislator? Like who who can people, because I can imagine many people hearing this and, and finding it uh, really unsettling and wondering what they can do. So who should be, who should they direct their attention toward um, to sort of get these provisions changed? Yeah, so um, so first go to, you know, checkthepolice.org. You can see the actual like for your city, what language is in the contract that might be problematic. Uh, and you can see when that contract expires. So when the contract expires, the city and the police, the, the police union will negotiate, you know, the new contract. Uh, and that usually gets a, has to be approved by the city council. So they should contact a city council member uh, or mayor and or mayor uh, who ultimately play a role in, you know, either approving that contract or saying, you know, we're not going to approve the contract unless these types of things are you know, Sam, I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. Uh, when we first launched Campaign Zero, a lot of people took issue with that 10th part of the platform um, on uh, police unions. And, you know, we were accused of being like neoliberal union busters um, and that people had used that as some of us for a long time. And this was their proof. Uh, and I, when I was a teacher, was a member of the Washington Teachers Union. I come from a labor family. I believe deeply in the power of collective bargaining um, and the importance of due process. But just because I believe in an institution doesn't mean that it's above critique. In fact, I believe that an institution um, that I love is the one that requires my critique. It's the one that requires my critical eye so that it can be at its best. Uh, and we consistently see that in the case of police unions specifically, that they often subvert not just the will of the people, but justice for the very people that are supposed to be protected and served in lots of the ways that this article runs out, uh, talks about. Because essentially what you're talking about is entire misconduct cases thrown out for the sake of a loophole um, or, you know, one missing piece, right, or one missed deadline. Um, and then somebody doesn't see any justice at all, right, or we don't take somebody dangerous off of the force. Um, and that is, like you said, Clint, that's incredibly scary. You know, I remember when we put out Campaign Zero, you're right, Brittany, and it was a while ago. It was like two years ago, it feels like now. And we talked about police unions and people were like up in arms about it. And, you know, I used to... Uh, Part of my work in the school system was I managed our relationship with the union, sat on the negotiating team, uh, know the union work 
know the contract work well, uh, definitely from an education perspective. And having looked at the police union contracts that we put up on checkthepolice.org and the analysis we did is that the police have some of the best negotiators in the game, just like they've negotiated these clauses. Like some, some cities have clauses that say that the police have to be disciplined in the least embarrassing way to the officer. You're like, I don't even know what that means. It's like, what does that, what what is the bar for that? Or in places like Chicago, which is actually being contested right now in court, is that it has a clause that the police officer's discipline records have to be uh, destroyed every five years, which is also wild. So uh, this analysis that you talked about, Sam, though, does talk about how discipline in general is just really, hard and tenuous and and the police that like they get discipline and then it gets overturned. What does that look like for any sense of accountability? And this goes underreported. So it doesn't make the news often. So I'm hopeful that this analysis by the Washington Post actually leads and empowers and equips local newspapers to like tease these stories out every time it happens. Because I believe that if the public knew this was happening, they would actually be up in arms because it doesn't make sense that an officer like just gets rehired on some random technicality, given the amount of power and influence that they currently have with regard to people's lives in cities. So I'm hopeful that this is just the beginning. And this this report just came out. So my news actually has to do with a friend of mine. Um, so a guy named Dwayne Betts. Uh, he was uh, charged with carjacking when he was 16 years old. Uh, and that was about 20 years ago. And he was released. Uh, he was convicted of eight years. uh, And then he was released in 2005. And since then, he's published two award-winning books of poetry, a memoir that won an NAACP Image Award, uh, earned a college degree, had a 4.0. He got a master's in fine arts degree, uh, had a Radcliffe Fellowship at Harvard, went, got into and graduated from Yale Law School, was accepted to PhD programs, talks and lectures across the country, uh, passed the Connecticut bar exam and has, had been working at the New Haven Public Defender's Office. And so, I mean, has an incredible resume. Uh, but on this past Thursday, he was told by the state of Connecticut that he may not have the, quote, requisite character and fitness to practice law. Uh, and so despite having passed the bar exam, despite having graduated from Yale Law School, despite having been uh, uh, an acclaimed and award-winning author and, and uh, incredible father and uh, having really recommitted himself and his life to to being the best person he can be for society and his family. They, the bar examining committee uh, has, quote, not recommended you for admission to the bar at this time. And so we've talked about Diva Pager's research on here uh, a couple different times and and her book, The Mark of a Criminal Record, um, and her research on, on the experiences in the job market of those who are formerly incarcerated um, and the racial disparities that exist within that. So we've, we've discussed that at hand, but this felt like a really direct, concrete, and both remarkable and astonishing example of that research at play that you have someone who is in many ways a model citizen, kind of as model of a citizen as you can be after being released from prison, um, and that you would have the Connecticut bar uh, committee suggests that he is unfit to be an attorney in the state of Connecticut. And and again, it's important to keep in mind that this is Connecticut, right? That this isn't Alabama. This isn't Mississippi. This is a state that is a blue state that sort of prides itself on its progressive reformist policies. And still, uh, they are preventing one of the most qualified people out there from, from entering uh, the Connecticut Bar Association and becoming an 
uh, practicing attorney in that state. And this is really important. And there are two books I really recommend people check out. Uh, one is by Yale law professor James Foreman, uh, which is entitled Locking Up Our Own. It's a great book. I just finished it. And Princeton professor uh, Naomi Murakawa called The First Civil Right. And both of these discuss the ways in which uh, states like Connecticut and people in Connecticut uh, who pride themselves on being otherwise really uh, socially and politically progressive have actually contributed in huge ways to the expansion of mass incarceration with small decisions like this one. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to bring this to the table because, you know, one, because Dwayne is is someone I know and uh, someone who I'm, I'm personally invested in. And uh, also because this story is really emblematic of something that is uh, happening to thousands and thousands of people um, after they're released from prison across this country. Oh boy. Um, this is disappointing, but not surprising. And I think, you, you know, this phrase, the mark of a criminal record um, is most striking to me because it really does mark you for the rest of your life. And if, if, if our justice system our supposed justice system is set up to allow people to quote unquote pay their debt to society over a set number of months or years and then be done with it. And that's what we should actually be doing. And whether or not he was a Yale law graduate or someone who had never seen the inside of a college, if he paid his debt, he paid his debt. Right. And we talk all the time, every single week about all of the ways in which, um, being formally incarcerated will shift the rest of your life and you should have been able to pay your debt. So this is, I think, a really um, powerful example of just how much you can do to rehabilitate yourself um, and to rehabilitate your circumstances and still for it to not be enough, which of course is the name of the article, but um, he shouldn't have had to do all that to still be treated as someone who successfully paid his debt. The editorial also made a really good point that this will discourage other people from following that same path, right? From deciding to rehabilitate, to, to rehabilitate their lives, deciding to pursue higher education, certification, all of those kinds of things. Because if I can do all of that and still not be given what I'm owed, then what's the point? No, exactly. Like what is the, what's going to motivate someone after seeing somebody like Dwayne do all of these things, go to the most prestigious law school in the country, get these fellowships from Ivy League schools, and that he, and for someone to look at him when they're incarcerated and about to be released and see that he can't even pursue the the professional trajectory that he wants and that he still has these roadblocks put up by a state that otherwise suggest, like prides itself on being a, a sort of bastion of, of progressivism. Uh, what what motivation do you have coming out of prison to to work hard enough to put yourself in a situation where you could also get a be roadblocked in that same sort of way? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I'm mindful of is how unrefined our understanding of, of rehabilitation is. Is that in all the things that we like have consumed in the media and in the way that we even publicly talk about incarceration and confinement that like we just do lip service to reha rehabilitation. Like we rarely really talk about reentry. Like we don't talk about like what the process is the day you get out of jail and then you have to figure out how to be in society again with, without any assets or without a clear path to a job for some people or housing like that whole part of 
the way people's imagination works, especially on ending mass incarceration, like just skips over rehab, that most people think about this as a front end issue, that they are like, you know, we should just stop locking up people. And it's like, we totally should stop locking up people. That that has to be a core part of the way we think about changing the system, decarceration. But we also have to figure out what do we do with all the people who are confined and all the people who have been confined. Like that has to also be a part of the conversation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, what's interesting about this, Clint, is that often the exception is used so that people can think that there's a, a, some sense of justice or fairness, right? So we let the person who like has gotten these awards and gone to law school, that we we allow him to flourish so that everybody else will think that's possible. And then we deny those people. But in this case, it's like they're denying this guy. And it is it is right, Clint, to call into question, like in a place where they like pride themselves on being progressive and da da da. It's like he'll he he still can't recover from uh, this crime that he was convicted of. And and again, like my takeaway from this is like we have to just do a better job of of helping people think through rehabilitation more deeply and like what it actually looks like and and I say that like both as activists and advocates, but also like in the way that we build media in the way we tell stories because it's wholly absent. Let me go to my news. I'm really interested in because we've not talked about this before. I'm interested in what all of you are going to say about this article, actually. So uh, this article is called Why the Myth of Meritocracy Hurts Kids of Color. It was published in The Atlantic, and it was written by Melinda Anderson, who I want to meet at some point because this article is fascinating. So the the quick and dirty is that a new study finds that believing society is fair can lead disadvantaged adolescents to act out and engage in risky behavior. So um, it was published in the peer-reviewed journal Child Development, and what it found was that traditionally marginalized young people who grew up believing in the American ideal that hard work and perseverance naturally lead to success show a decline in self-esteem and an increase in risky behaviors during their middle school years. And what the article says is that the research is considered the first evidence linking preteen emotional and behavioral outcomes to their belief in meritocracy. And meritocracy, as you know, is is the idea that individual merit, so like you working really hard, is always rewarded. And the study is of um, it is of two hundred and fifty seven kids in an urban public middle school in Arizona. Ninety one percent of them were students of color. Fifty five percent were Latino, 18 percent black, 11 percent Native American and seven percent were uh, other non-white young people. And it's interesting to me because, you know, we have all of the media that we consume in the world we grow up in tells us that like hard work is always rewarded and that if you uh, like ability will always be uh, treated in some kind way. And that this study is one of the first studies that actually calls that into question that says that uh, young people who are people of color, who just believe in, who believe that that is true might actually be disadvantaged in the long run and, and, and that we could actually measure that because they start to internalize some of the feelings when they aren't experiencing success, that they think it's them, that they think that they aren't smart or that they aren't worthy. When really, in some cases, it is actually like a system that is not designed to support them or a system that is actually designed to ensure that there's a ceiling at some point. So just was fascinated by uh, this study and, and wanted to bring it here for us to talk about. So, you know, I talk about this all that time. I just gave a talk about it. It's actually on my Twitter page um, um, at a school's conference in Las Vegas last week on the on lots of things, but essentially on the importance of what is called culturally responsive pedagogy. 
as a primer, culturally responsive pedagogy is a, a, a framework of teaching developed by a Black scholar, Dr. Gloria Latson Billings from the University of um, Wisconsin-Madison. And it essentially says three things, that academic rigor and skill, um, cultural confidence, right? So belief uh, in who you are, high self-esteem, and critical consciousness, right? A critical understanding of the world that all three of those things have to sit alongside each other in the classroom if that classroom is going to be effective for any child, but especially children of color. And this is exactly why I emphasize this point so much. If we, if we say that we're preparing children, but then actually don't talk about the world in which they will enter with those skills, then we're not adequately preparing them. The best educators raise the critical consciousness of young people such that they know that meritocracy is a bit. And if you want a great, quick scholarly article on that, there's an article written by Dr. Lassen Billings called, But That's Just Good Teaching, the Art of Critical, uh, or sorry, of Culturally Responsive Pedagogy. And so this is really interesting. This makes me think about uh, this research that ha- was done in the American Educational Research Journal uh, in 2014 that was talking about uh, what a lot of people now know about because uh, it's been in the news, but this ethnic studies program that it's, was instituted in a lot of Arizona public schools, and they had uh, a Mexican-American studies program specifically, and that program was cut uh, in 2013 because re- the Republican uh, legislature deemed it too, quote, too political. Um, and it's interesting because those programs, those ethnic studies programs, those Mexican-American studies and African-American studies classes, students who took those classes were actually 10% more likely to graduate than students who didn't, right? And so so we can, so there's two things at play here. One is that it is essential, as we've talked about before on this podcast, and as Brittany talks about all the time, it is essential that teachers are in classrooms doing the work of having students understand, as I've said before, the world is a social construction and thus can be reconstructed and deconstructed and made into something new, and that the realities of your community are not inevitabilities, but they are the result of public policy decisions that people have made that prioritize certain communities and deprioritize other communities. And once a student understands that, they can disabuse themselves of the notion that the people in those communities have are somehow responsible for the conditions of those communities singularly because that leads to the internalized uh, stereotyping that leads to uh, no sort of internalized cultural pathology. But, but also that this has like very real, tangible, concrete academically beneficial outcomes for students. Because if you, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're sitting here and you're in class and you you go home to a community every day um, where there's gun violence, you go home and there's no grocery stores, you go home and your parents aren't home because they have to work uh, two, three, four jobs, or you're in a community where there's alcoholism or drug abuse, you might look around and if nobody's teaching you otherwise, if nobody is telling you that the reason that these things exist is because of things that have happened historically, then you will begin to think, oh, well, this is just what people in my community are like. So this must be what I'm like. What's the point of me working hard in school if this is what I'm going to end up being like anyway? And so what these Amer- ethnic studies and, and black studies and Mexican-American studies classes do is help students understand that history, understand the history of what has made the, the United States look the way that it has and helps them understand a sort of more nuanced and accurate uh, understanding of who they are culturally. And I think the coalescence of those two things ultimately ends up giving students stronger self-esteem, which leads to better grades, which leads to better long-term health and academic outcomes. Um, 
And, you know, so while Arizona has cut it, uh, nearby in California, the Los Angeles Unified School District said that by 2019, every student is required to take at least one semester of ethnic studies. And as someone who teaches ethnic studies courses, uh, I, I couldn't think about a more important um, curricular development uh, than mm-hmm. instituting ethnic studies courses uh, across every public school district in this country and private school. I think those kids need that as much, if not more, um, than, than all our students as well. The summary version is lying to kids does not help them learn. (laughs) (laughs) Don't lie to the kids. (laughs) In talking about ethnic studies classes, it wasn't until um, I was already out of college and in sort of my first like post-college job that I actually saw uh, a a class that used culturally responsive pedagogy like in person. And that was uh, in Oakland. They have the Oakland Unified School District has its African-American male initiative, which has like middle schoolers, high schoolers, uh, they have a class that they take, I think it's every day that is grounded in um, helping kids understand uh, not only sort of the, the history uh, and context for why America is not America meritocracy, uh, but also helping them get the skills to fight back and, and to you know be a part of the solution, which I think is so important. And just to round out the study, you know, at three points over the, I'm reading this from the article, at three points over the course of middle school, the youth rated their self-esteem, behavior, and experience with discrimination. And in sixth grade, among the students who believed the system was fair, self-esteem was high and risk behavior was rare. By the end of seventh grade, these same students reported lower self-esteem and more risky behaviors with no significant differences based on race, ethnicity, gender, or immigration generation. So, What they show, and this is a small sample size, they acknowledge it, it reinforces some other studies that have been done that highlight that meritocracy actually has has real consequences for the way that people think about the world and the way that they live in the world, especially people of color. Um, And it was one of the most fascinating things I've read in the past couple of weeks. And just want to emphasize that, like, this is work that white teachers in classrooms and white administrators in schools need to be personally committed to as well. I mean, I think this is one of those things that the the burden can often fall on singularly the like, you know, Latino ethnic studies teacher or the like black African-American studies teacher. But like, this is something that, you know, it shouldn't, these things shouldn't, conversations shouldn't only be happening in an, a quote ethnic studies classroom. Like these are conversations that can be happening in literature classrooms in history classrooms in science classrooms. I mean, there are, a myriad of ways to introduce these ideas to your students. And I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, teachingtolerance.org, um, or that they might be tolerance.org online, but Teaching Tolerance, Teaching for Change, and uh, the Zen Education Project are three really incredible resources for teachers who are looking at the their syllabi for the coming year and, and really thinking about how they can have more culturally responsive uh, pedagogical models. And, and those are three resources that I think are really helpful on that front. That's the news. And now a conversation with Chris Hayes, the MSNBC correspondent and host of the show All In with Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes, thank you for joining Pod Save the People. My pleasure. Um, we first met in, did we meet in Ferguson? I mean, I knew who you were in Ferguson. I don't know. If I think we, we met in Ferguson. Um, I think we had a few conversations in Ferguson. I remember us talking for a while down in Charleston, actually. Yes. Um, which was such a 
heavy scene. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that it was the same reporters who went to most of the cities, you know? I remember being in new cities and being like, I know you, I know totally, you, yeah. I know you, a lot of us who were there. It's about to be the um, three-year anniversary of Mike Brown's death this week. Um, I remember... I was just telling you before we started recording, I remember, you know, people forget that we couldn't stand still in St. Louis. So, like, if you stood still for more than five seconds, you're arrested. Right. But the press got to stand still. Right. And there was this moment where you were standing still and this woman cussed you out. And it was the first time I remember meeting you or seeing you. <laughs> yes. Getting cussed. What is it like? Um, I'm interested in, like, what it, what it's like to be on TV now in general and talk about the news. But how has it changed since the election? I think, I mean, the biggest thing that's changed is just uh, um, the stakes feel higher than they've ever felt. Um, there's always a sense of, it, it, it seems like we're constantly kind of stress testing basic um, institutional safeguards on American liberal democracy, for lack of a better word. Uh, and those stress tests are happening in a bunch of different directions. They happen in the courts. They'll happen... In Congress, you know, little things like will the U.S. Senate go along with, say, you know, firing Robert Mueller? Uh, will they um, go into recess to allow the president a recess appointment, which they haven't done? But from a media perspective, it also feels like we're part of this basic, you know, the, the, the basic project of um, creating the conditions for healthy civil society in a country that is undergoing a series of kind of intersecting crises. Have you seen the feedback from your viewers change? Yeah, I mean, the feedback, yeah, people are more, it's interesting. I, I my time in the primetime time slot, it has an interesting kind of trough to peak um, experience because we started in April 1st, 2013, which was a moment of real, Oh, wow. So Drop. by the time I met you, your show was like newish. We, yeah, right. We've been doing it for about a year. Yeah. And and going to Ferguson was the first time we'd really taken the show on the road. So that was like a big, big moment for oh, us. I'd, I didn't I hadn't that. done that before. Um, April 1st, 2013 is this moment where political interest in the country really falls off a cliff. And that's reflected in all across all different kinds of media that are focused on politics, traffic numbers at different websites, um, ratings for political news. Because I think there was this feeling of kind of stasis at the level of politics writ large, like the president of the GOP Congress. They're not going to do anything. They're going to fight. There's a shutdown. There's, um, and in that, it was in that space that the the stories of sort of grassroots social movements became much more focal. Hmm. Um, and and so now the politics. I mean, I talked to a I talked to a novelist the other day who was talking about how. Fiction sales are down some mm. precipitous amount. And the theory is basically that people are just so attuned to the news, That's to what's happening in D.C., that, that, that it's actually crowded out other forms of media consumption. So what has changed is that people's level of attentiveness is extremely high. The level of almost emotional attachment they have to the news every day is extremely high. And, um, and you can feel that. You can feel – you know, friends of mine from high school who um, are not news junkies but are well-informed individuals who two years ago probably weren't watching the show every night but are watching the show now. You can sort of see yeah. it in all these kind of marginal viewers that, 
you know, during the Obama era, I think there was a, a feeling among a certain set of folks that the country sort of broadly and decent hands Um, and that every day is, you know, what comes out of DC is not life or death. And I I think that's changed for a lot of people. Do you, what, uh, I imagine that that must feel like a lot of responsibility knowing that all these new people sort of look at you and listen to what you say. Yeah, Um, it does. How do you process that? Um, I I don't process, I think I don't process it as explicitly its own thing so much as I process, process it in the context of trying to put together a good show. And, in terms of that context, I think that we've just been really, you know, we just work very hard to be diligent and thorough. And I think the big the big thing for me is don't let the erosion of standards of evidence or norms that we see in the political culture, particularly emanating from the top down, the president of the United States, don't let that suck you into a race to the bottom which is maintain your old standards. Try to um, be skeptical even of news reports that you or your audience may be disposed to like. (laughs) Ask for evidence. Um, Try to extend, when possible, uh, fair or charitable readings towards people that you may disagree with. Try to embody all these different processes of thought that are not being embodied by the most powerful person in the world. Now, to the public, and I'm going to call. I consider myself the public in yeah. this in this regard. Um, it feels like so much of the news is Trump. That like 90 percent of what we see on the news is is Trump, and this is so different to me than what it was like before the election. Because I feel like we just got so we got so much about like social stuff and about totally. sort of I don't know. It just seemed like there was much broader coverage. Yes, that's true. I mean, it, it is. He crowds everything out. Um, but isn't that, you, isn't that you all making a choice to do that? Like, couldn't you choose to do something else, I guess, is my question. Yeah. We, and that's an earnest question. Yeah, no, that's a totally fair question. I think um, I would say two things. One is that it's not entirely a choice that's divorced from audience demand um, at all. Okay. <laughs> so there's tremendous demand. Um, there is also the fact that he is the most important person in the world. Um, he's the single most powerful person in the world. I don't think that's an overstatement or hyperbolic thing to say. He is the commander-in-chief of the largest and most powerful military that's ever been, ever been assembled in the history of human civilization. He Details. has the ability <laughs> to, um, you know, uh, launch nuclear weapons, uh, which is true of every president, and there's a real question about has the American presidency as an institution grown too powerful that I think is a really important question for all of us to wrestle with now that we have this individual that a huge part of the country feels is totally um, unprepared to wield that power. So I think on, on the macro level, there's an editorial justification for putting a lot of focus on him. But that said, two things are happening. One is you know, one of his genuine and I think undisputed talents is attracting attention. That's been that's been the case from when I was 12 years old, getting up in the Bronx and walking out to the bus stop that I took the bus stop down to my high school in Manhattan. Um, there's like two tabloid boxes by the bus stop, Daily News and New York Post. So every day you go and you see who's on the front page. And it was him a lot. <laughs> he was good at it then. He came up in this particular environment of New York City tabloid papers in which he learned 
to do things that got attention. He's very good at that, and he wants that. So when people talk about this or that's a distraction as if it's some sort of sophisticated game of chess, I just think it's, at this point, extremely authentic to who he is that he always wants the attention on himself. He just does. And that you can get caught in the trap of giving him the attention that he's seeking, but at the same time, it's also like, he is the president of the United States. <laughs> so that is, that is, yeah. that it, it, there is, it is newsworthy when he does many of the things that he does. Um, or his team does many of the things that Or the do. team does many of the things that he does. Now, you are correct that it has crowded out really important coverage on other things, and that's a problem. Um, we try to approach that in various different ways. Um, you know, one of the best examples of this is climate, which just sort of, you know, Europe right now is having basically one of the worst heat waves it's ever had. Um, the numbers that keep coming in just get more and more insane. The the kind of warning system of the earth shouting louder and louder. And it's really hard. That's not a front burner legislative issue in D.C. So issues like immigration or healthcare are easier to cover because there'll be a fight about them in D.C. Yep. They will drive a news cycle. Um, things that aren't even on the table get relegated right now. And yeah, that's a, that's a real challenge. What about is, is Russia actually worth the attention that you all are putting on it? And I say you all as like the media broadly, because I've heard a lot of people say that like people aren't going to come out to vote in 18 because of Russia, that it's an international issue and that people who are focused on domestic issues that impact their lives every day, like aren't, don't really care about Russia, but Russia takes up a huge part of the conversation about Trump in the media. Yeah, I think, I think there's something to that, although I think that's also a, bit of a, a little bit of role confusion in the sense of um, it's not what people will vote on is a different question um, than what to cover or what's newsworthy. I mean, those two things are, have a complicated relationship to each other at any moment. <laughs> when you look at what 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 is the media in sort of a broad sense cover um, when it's not Russia? Like there's tons of coverage for dumb viral videos that people aren't going to vote on either. Um, I, I think that yes, it it is true that it can the Russia stuff can crowd out um, really high stakes important issues. And we saw this battle with healthcare. We were really focused on healthcare when the fight was happening because it was high stakes and it was also tangible in the sense of something's going to happen right now that citizens need to be well-informed on in terms of how they interact with their representative democracy. So that there is a peril there, absolutely. I mean, the problem from a sort of news perspective is numerous times the story has faded a bit to the background, but the thing that has kept driving it are actual revelations or actions. Like what? He fired the FBI director. <laughs> it's never happened before. Like, it happened once before with Bill Clinton, and there was an inspector general report, and he called the guy, and they went through all these processes. He fired a guy who was investigating his campaign and then said it was because of the story. He uh, – an email came out that was almost comically and preposterously incriminating that would – for skeptics like myself of a, the idea that there was some actual ham-fisted collusion was kind of earth-shattering in the sense that, well, it's sort of right here. So, what did the email say? The email of this, like, we'll give you, uh, we'll give you dirt from the Russian government on Hillary Clinton, um, and Don Jr. saying, "Great, let's do it," and they have that meeting, you know, in Trump Tower. So, I've also seen this situation in which it will fade a little bit the story, but the thing that has kept it in the news is that there keep being incriminating developments about it, and 
you know, that's a story. I mean, I, I, was, I was talking to someone about this with Nixon the other day because, you know, Watergate sort of went in fits and starts and it, went, it took a long time for it to kind of culminate. And a lot of stuff was happening during that time. I mean, the U.S. war in Vietnam, particularly the bombing of Cambodia, things that were in some broad historical sense, maybe even more important, high stakes. Um, but that story ended up being as important as the people who followed it thought it was. And I think in real time, it could be hard to assess whether the editorial decisions being made about this story are correct or not, because we don't know actually the underlying facts. Yeah. And we don't know where it goes. But what I will say is each new development tends to me to suggest there's something quite disturbing and important there. <laughs> now, you know, I have a weekly podcast. You have a show that is, I feel like it's all the time. It's great. Um, I say that because I learned so much in prepping for some of the content-based parts of the podcast. I'd be interested to know what you learned, if anything, about healthcare with the consistent coverage that you offered on the national stage about healthcare. For me, it was kind of my second run at it because I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2007 and became the Washington editor of the, the Nation magazine. And so I was there covering day in, day out, the first healthcare fight. I mean, it's not the first healthcare fight. It's like the 50th healthcare <laughs> fight, but but the fight around passing the ACA. I mean, I, I mean, part of what drove me crazy about this process, and this was true of an entire cohort of journalists who had covered the ACA fight, was we, were, we all saw that process. We all went, we were sitting in hearings after hearings after hearings. We were watching the deliberations and the back and forth and the level of public attention. And what happened this time around was so remarkably different than that. I mean, they tried to pull off major healthcare the way that you would try to pull off a heist. Like maybe if we disable a few of the alarms and then while the guard <laughs> is out there, we could like get in there real quick and pass a healthcare bill and get out by the time that anyone calls the cops. That's how the whole process felt. That was not how the ACA worked. It was litigated in the campaign in endless detail. I mean, people forget that there were 20-minute chunks of Democratic primary debates that were Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama fighting about the details of healthcare policy, particularly the individual mandate, which Barack Obama did not support and then flipped once he uh, was elected to support. And so to me, the, the big takeaway, it was less about what I learned about the healthcare system, which it was a little bit of muscle memory. Like it was like riding a bike because all this stuff I had been so immersed in the first time around that I had a pretty conversant sense of how the ACA worked and what problems it was trying to address and what its failures were. It was more just the, the gobsmacking brazenness of this attempt to do something so important legislatively with so little care. I mean, I, I had a tweet that said, you wouldn't build a doghouse with this level of sloppiness. <laughs> you would be worried it would fall in on your dog. And they went about this with less prudence and care than you would do almost anything of any significance. Buying a car, you would put more thought and deliberation into purchasing a car than they were putting into this legislative agenda that would impact millions of people's lives yeah like in the most flesh and blood life or death way so that part of it that was the big takeaway it was in, in some ways what was maddening was i would have loved to talk more about the policy details but they were so 
manifestly terrible. They were so (laughs) ill-considered and they were being offered in such obvious bad faith that it was almost difficult to get to a point to have real disputes about the policy details because they were so clearly just throwing things against the wall to see what would stick with so little concern or attention to how they would, say, affect healthcare markets. At one point, they're, they're trying to jam in this Cruz Amendment, you know, in the, in the last few days that would, for a bunch of slightly complicated actuarial reasons, essentially create two different risk pools in American non-group insurance markets yep. that had the potential to just destroy the entirety of the non-group individual health insurance market in all 50 states for the entire country. And they were just like, well, I don't know, let's just see if we can get it in. You had the insurers who, it's not like the insurer's word is gospel at all, but the insurers come out and say, this would destroy these markets, just FYI. <laughs> and, so, and this is something that was being like considered and voted on. Maybe we'll attach it last minute, maybe not. So the sort of aggressive sloppiness of it, it, it was really astounding. And particularly for people like myself, for whom covering the ACA was the defining kind of policy journalism of my early career, it was doubly exasperating and infuriating. We met three years ago in the streets in, in St. Louis. And from, you know, I think about at the beginning is that people thought there was a crisis in Ferguson. They didn't think there was a crisis in the country, right? And you've, you've covered this a little bit uh, in your book and you definitely talk about it in, you know, on the show. And uh, three years later, I think that we have totally changed the public conversation about criminal justice and race and the police. I uh, people question whether like the material conditions have changed or whether there's like the infrastructure for those conditions to actually change. Um, what is your take on that? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, there. I think there has been there has been a lot of progress in the nature of the conversation. There has been progress. I think there's actually been progress in public opinion. Um, th- there's good. There has been some good evidence to show that white public opinion. Um, moved. Um, Although there's also been a backlash effect. Um, And I think it's been actually a huge part of what the Trump phenomenon was. Um, Really a big part. People would, Trump voters would tell me, you know, political correctness was a thing they would say to me, but people hate the police or Black Lives Matter became a kind of stand-in for a certain sense of white dispossession and white victimhood that was powerful fuel for what happened. Um, I think the country is sort of balanced on a knife's edge right now, so I I can't make a conclusion about it because I think we had this tremendous generation of public awareness, political retrenchment and backlash, and a real question now about where this all goes. Um, And I don't know the answer. Um, it, it seems like there's a lot of different eventualities that are possible that range tremendously from some real genuine and important structural reforms to really bad, um, crackdowns and toughness that will be, um, visited most brutally upon people of color. I will also say this, I think that There's something really interesting happening right now uh, in white America with opioids. Um, It's brutal and horrific and tragic at the first level before you say anything else about it. It's it's the numbers are really shocking. Uh, Number two, we should also note, because it has been 
portrayed as something distinct or unique to white America that actually the racial discrepancies, which were very real in the beginning of this epidemic, have begun to shrink. So it's bleeding over. Um, places like the Bronx, for instance, which is 15% white maybe, um, are seeing real big upticks in numbers of overdoses. So this is something where it's not just white America. Um, the task, uh, Trump's task force just said, uh, recommended that he consider this uh, like, a, emerg- like a, a national emergency. A national emergency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a real open question about, you know, there's this sense, I think, that the way that the opioid crisis is talked about is very different than St. Crack. And I think that's 100% true. And there was a great Times piece about this during the campaign and the levels of empathy and treatment, not prison, that we've seen rhetorically has been so distinct. And I've lived in New York in the crack era, watched that coverage up close, write about it in the book, and it was so brutal and so dehumanizing and so disgusting, really. I mean, to revisit it now particularly is just – it's abhorrent (laughs) the way that people in the throes of addiction are, are talked about. All of that said, that punitive impulse in American life is super strong. And I'm not convinced that we're not going to see that rear its head even in places in which the problem is exclusively white. Yeah. There's been this sort of sense that like, well, when it comes to white America, people are going to get real empathetic. And that may be true rhetorically, but keep your eyes on what's happening in the local level. There is a real political movement for crackdown, get tough, cut them off, et cetera even in areas in which the, cr- the problem itself isn't intensely racialized. I and mean, we're talking about areas in which all the addicts and all the dealers are white. Hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a really important thing to keep your eye on in terms of thinking about what got us to where we are in the system we built. Because race is central to it from the very jump. But there's something even when you take – to the extent you can, which you never really can, but to the extent where you can take sort of race out of it, even in areas in which race is not the predominant narrative, there's this sort of punitive impulse that's still there. And I've, I've seen it in people I've talked to who are in areas that are being struck by it where there's a sense that the solution is toughness. Um, and that's a very appealing notion. And people do worry that this might be the rebirth of the war on drugs, just like with the different packaging. Yeah, when you listen to Joe Manchin in West Virginia talk about it, I mean, he literally said we need another war on drugs. Yeah. Um, and in the context of West Virginia, West Virginia is very different than New York City in the 1990s, right? So the, the, you know, the, the degree to which all of the conversation of crack and drugs and crime in New York in the 90s was so intensely racialized, and this racialized other they, you, the white citizen, are being imperiled by them. It's not really the same in West Virginia. It is interesting. I, I didn't consider this idea because you're right. It, I mean, it is a public health crisis in the, in the way people are talking about it in public. And you're saying that like when when the rubber meets the road in terms of like the policies and practices, you think that it might actually still be as or, or similarly carceral. Carceral. Yeah, and I think there's I think there's some evidence of that. There was a Times article about a county in Indiana that is, I think it was a county in Indiana that is almost uh, entirely white that has very high opioid numbers and is incarcerating very quickly. Um, so I read an article today that talked about how the police are tracking uh, opioid prescriptions yep. in every state, yep. which like I didn't know that was happening. Yeah, it's like that's fascinating. So I and I and the I mean the the scope of what's happening is really, you know, it's pretty crazy to get your head around. I mean, sixty thousand deaths is a shocking number. Um, is it what are the policy issues that you think people should be tuned to in the next three to six months? <sighs> I, th- I mean, the big thing that there will there will be a big fight about taxes. Um, 
and there'll be a big fight about the there'll be a big budget fight in the fall. It's going to be a it's going to operate a few levels because of some complicated procedural questions about things they have to do. So there'll be a fight about taxes. There'll be a fight about funding the wall, which is going to be a big kind of game of chicken about the degree to which the White House wants to invite a face-off over that provision. Isn't the debt ceiling stuff coming up? Yeah, exactly. So the de- you got the debt ceiling, you've got the budget. And what is the debt ceiling? Can you explain the debt ceiling to people? Uh, yeah, so there's a, uh, there is a statutory limit meaning in written into law, there's a limit about how much debt the U.S. government can issue. Um, when they reach the limit of how much debt they've issued, they need to go back to Congress, who has to then say, you can now issue more debt. Um, there's no, I think there maybe is only one other OECD country that has this mechanism. It's a crazy mechanism. Um, it, it, Congress is already making the decision about how much debt to issue when it passes its budgets, which are signed by the president, right? So when you when you say, we, Congress, pass these 12 appropriations bills, <laughs> and we also have a tax code that we've written, and, you know, there's money coming in, money going out. We know what the difference is. That's tacit authority to issue the debt to make up the difference. So it's crazy to have this other mechanism on top of it, which, you know, you play these insane games of global financial chicken with. So they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. We should do away with the debt ceiling. It's a stupid and dangerous thing to have. Why will it be a fight? Like, what's the fight? Well, the, the, the fight is this. Anytime you have must-pass legislation, like a debt ceiling raise, you are inviting people to make high-stakes bets on what they can shove into that legislation and dare people to vote it down. So if there's a sense that, like, this thing has to pass— that's an open invitation for everyone to get to jam their priorities in it. So one question would be, do you jam in border funding, a wall funding in a bill that has to pass the debt ceiling because then you're forcing, right. you know, because you think, well, they got to vote for it. So right. we're gonna, yeah, my, my, my wall funding. <laughs> now that can backfire, right? Because then you, do you end up in these crazy, it, it really is a game of chicken. Um, so there's going to be a, the, the, the big policy issues of the fall are going to center around these big budgetary fights, um, the wall taxes. Um, I think there might be some immigration fights that are sort of associated with that. The Supreme Court's going to hear the um, travel ban case. So that'll also be sort of peak. Um, That'll be front of mind, I think. Um, And I think those will be kind of the big ones. And then there's going to be a bunch of continuing constitutional issues about the special counsel, the deputy attorney general, the degree to which he's independent. There's going to be attempted attacks on him continuing that are going to bring us to the precipice of some real intense constitutional issues. And what do you say to people who, so in this moment, I think that there are a lot of people who are nervous, confused, sort of feel like they've stood in the street and it hasn't materialized into anything they voted, hasn't changed the world. They watch the news every day and like, and we still are in a, we're still in a context where like skinny repeal is like actually a possibility. What do you say to those people who are losing hope or have lost hope? I, I mean, I have to say, I think, um, I think that the political mobilization and the reawakening of a certain kind, a certain segment of civil society has been one of the great stories of the first nine months of the administration. I mean, it's remarkable they didn't repeal the Affordable Care Act. They were going to do that in the first month. Right. <laughs> right. It's remarkable that the full travel ban is not, has not been implemented. 
that they had to rescind the first one, then issue a second one. Then they got in, that enjoined. Then they got a sort of partial release on the, uh, you know, the temporary restraining order on that. So, you know, I remember the morning after George W. Bush was reelected in 2004, every story for months was about a permanent Republican majority in the country, building red America, Democrats, the left, it's a center-right country now and forever. You know, and two years later, the Democrats took the House in one of the biggest landslides uh, in the history of Congress, and then two years later, Barack Obama was elected president. The country's intensely polarized, um, but it's not a majority anything country. <laughs> because it's so intensely polarized, um, organization and passion and sweat and participation matter a tremendous amount, precisely because it's so balanced on a nice edge. And so I think you've seen, I mean, it is amazing that August recess happened without the number one big legislative agenda of the entire Republican Party for seven years that they talked about not having gotten done. And it only didn't get done because of the organizing in opposition to it. Yep. And you know who will tell you that is um, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who will talk about the constituents they met, who talked about what the bill would do to them. John McCain's conversations with the governor of Arizona, who was getting a lot of flack from various citizens groups and industry groups about what the bill would do to that state. So I actually think one of the most amazing stories of the first nine months is how effective all of this concerted activity has been in stalling, slowing down, keeping in bounds uh, uh, a presidency and unified government that could, in the absence of that, be doing a lot, lot, lot more. I think that the most difficult thing to do, and I, I say this with some hyperbole, but I think it's true, the most difficult thing to do in the entire history of industrialized democracy is to build robust multiracial democratic coalitions. It's not a lot of great examples of it. We, took, we look at countries that have very strong lefts and trade unionist traditions and social welfare states. They tend not to be particularly racially diverse. Um, we see the ways in which the politics of immigration can rend apart coalitions that were formerly stable in places like Europe that are having new demographic changes in terms of the racial composition of their societies. And we see in American history these amazing moments when, we, when, when people built strong multiracial coalitions for justice, equality, shared prosperity, solidarity. And they're so hard to build. <laughs> and they're so hard to sustain. And that work is never going to get easy. There's no stasis place for it. It's just hard work. And I think there are examples of places where that's been done. The, you know, the, the sort of Reverend Barber's fusion politics in North Carolina have been really remarkable in that way, the Moral Monday movement. We've seen it at various moments in this country's history at the UAW, particularly under Walter Ruther, that really produced amazing kind of cross-racial solidarity. And that remains a real challenge and hard thing for the American left to do. Hmm. And you could see it struggle with it every day in a million different directions. 
Now, last question is, what do you make of the the calls for uh, us to shift away from what people put in quotes and call identity politics to focus on the, quote, working class? Uh, what do you make of, of those I think it's a, I think it's a false choice. I think the term identity politics has gotten worn past usefulness. It's like the it's like the term elites, which I use a lot, but it also just doesn't mean anything anymore. People use it for a million things. Um, you know, Donald Trump's great innovation was um, selling a brand of white identity politics in a kind of powerful way that was very effective with certain segments of the population. Um, like what I, made it effective? It was more... He, start, he started saying the quiet parts loud. Hmm. Um, he didn't mess around with dog whistles. And I think it worked <laughs> with a lot of people. Um, I don't I, – these disputes are so hard because I feel like I am really sympathetic to people on various sides of the various battles that I see play out in my timeline every day. I think it's ridiculous to say we're not going to focus on, quote, identity politics – and focus, quote, on the working class um, because all politics is identity of politics. And the question, the big question that politics answers in some ways is what do people identify as in the public sphere? You know, every person has a million different identities. I'm a father. <laughs> I'm a journalist. So that identity seems important to me in certain moments. Um, I'm a white man, I'm a straight white man. That's not an identity I like, think of as important in what I want to affirm out into the world, but is important in terms of what opportunities and um, authority that I have. So one of the big questions of, of all politics, identity politics, and the struggle is how people feel about which identity they feel a part of hmm. and which identities they feel are valued. And I think that one of the things that sometimes there is lacking right now is like there is a lot of people – there's a lot of lack of extension of charitable reading <laughs> to folks um, on different – who are occupying different parts of this big conversation and debate. And um, I think people should just try to not be jerks is basically like <laughs> – like, no, sir, I really mean that. Like try to be charitable – towards people. Um, and there is no, there is no progressive majority or left liberal majority in America that is not, um, a proudly multiracial one and proudly, um, that proudly includes, um, gay folks and straight folks and trans folks and includes, um, the differently abled <laughs> and includes people who are, poor or identify as working class, like all of those different identities have to be put together to produce the majority that people want to produce on the center left of this country. There's no choice around that. Yep. <laughs> that that's, that's just the way it's going to be. So people have to figure out how we talk about those identities sort of in concert with each other as part of a sort of broad shared agenda that everyone with those different identities that they feel most viscerally or importantly or most socially articulated are valued, cherished, celebrated, and woven into the sort of bigger picture. Cool. Thank you, Rasez, for joining us on Pod Save the People. My pleasure. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or something else, and tell a friend, and I'll see you back here next week. 
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people.